Thank you all. Malachi chapter 3, I did have it written down. I think, Laura, four months, 16 weeks. See, that makes it a lot easier, so it's just right around the corner. But when they tell us after the first week we're waiting, and it's like a year and a half later, uh, it comes. We thought the baby had already come because we've been waiting so long, but this makes us uh, not have to wait as long. And, and I know they've been dying to, to tell, and, and they just had to make sure the right people knew at the right time. I'm glad we're able to announce that. Malachi chapter 3. Now, we've been going through on Sunday mornings the five habits of a healthy Christian. And these are spiritual disciplines. And discipline, it does require us to make some decisions and to make some lifestyle changes. And ultimately, it's a mindset shift to have right discipline. Stephen Covey, who many may recognize the name, wrote the seven habits of a leader. And he goes through and just dealing with, you're going to be an effective leader. You've got to incorporate these things. Well, God gives us habits that are healthy that can help us be a growing Christian. Our theme for the year is experiencing God. It's not just knowing about Him. Almost everybody in here probably knows Abraham Lincoln. But he hasn't changed your life just knowing facts about Him. And a lot of people, their lives are not changed just because they know facts about God. It is not facts that will change your life. It is God himself that'll transform. It starts with the saving of your soul. And when God saves a soul, he literally moves inside. That's what separates Christianity from all the other religions of the world. And that's why his requirement for salvation is not what you do. When somebody says, I, I'm going to heaven because look at all the things I do. That tells me you're not going to heaven. Because God says it's not by works of righteousness which you have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saves you. Why? Because he goes on to say, if it's based upon what you do, then you boast in what I do. No one's going to get to heaven because of sending God your resume of what you've done. It's only the cross that was sung. It's only the blood of Jesus. You say, well, I am trusting in Jesus. And what else? It's not Jesus plus something. It's not Jesus minus something. It's Jesus and only Jesus. And so once you get saved, there's some healthy habits. Once you get married, there's some healthy habits to having a happily ever after marriage. And God's given us some healthy habits that will help us experience God and grow. We've looked at already Bible study, daily in the Word of God. Number two, we've looked at church attendance, where that comes in. The writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourself together. Today, people have all kinds of ideas. I can worship God out here. I can worship God on the lake. I can worship God in the woods. You can, but the problem is you don't. But God says, go ahead and worship him at the lake and in the woods, but don't you forsake the assembling of yourself together. And so we looked at the matter of prayer. If you don't learn what it means to pray, you're going to faint, you're going to give up. And now this morning we look at the fourth one. And that is the matter of regular giving. Now I know there are some who've come to church, you haven't been to church in a long time, and you, your first thought is, 
That's all you ever talk about is giving. Well, actually we do. Because God's given more to us than anybody I could ever think of. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's about the cross that was sung. But I want to take you to a place in Malachi. Did you find it yet? Some of you said, that's why I have tabs in my Bible so I can get there. But I want to take you to a place, and I've heard a lot of people say over the years that I have put God to the test. But this is the only place that I know of in all the Bible where God says, put me to the test. God says, prove me, put me to the test and see if I don't come through in doing more for you than you could ever think possible. We're going to talk about regular giving. Somebody says, um, I thought... uh, This series is about helping me grow in my faith and experience God. But you just want me to give more money. But I I, I want you to know this is not a bait and switch. I promise you this is not a fundraising scheme by any means. We're talking about this as an essential habit of a healthy Christian because God talks about it. If God didn't talk about it, we wouldn't talk about it. You know, God talks about giving and stewardship more than he talks about heaven. He talks about giving more than he talks about praying. If we did not encourage you to give the Bible way, we would deprive you of joy and your growth in the Lord would be stunted as a disciple of Jesus. So what we're talking about today is for your own joy. It's for your own growth in Christ. Now, here's the principle as well as the title. You ready? You can't outgive God. You can't outgive God. I've only been doing this about 20 years six years, and no one has ever been able to say to me, I've outgiven God. No one has, no one can. You won't be the first because God is still God. You can't outgive God. That's it. It's short. It's simple. It's straight to the point. But there are some more points. And so the truth is you can't outgive God. Let's look at it together. Let's stand please for the respect given to the reading, the preaching of the Bible in Malachi chapter number three. Notice in verse number eight. Malachi is a preacher, a prophet in the Old Testament. He says, will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse. For ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now, herewith saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. I want us to look at this truth this morning. You can't outgive God. If you want to thrive and be a healthy Christian, 
disciple that experiences the reality of God. We've got to know this particular practice and habit and discipline within our life. Thank you. Please be seated. The name Malachi, it literally means my messenger. That's what his name meant. And Malachi delivers his message in a day and age much like our day and age. Here, the people that Malachi is speaking to, the people of God, they have forgotten God. They have forsaken God. And as a result of forgetting God and forsaking God, they have also forfeited the blessings of God. We live in a day just like that. All throughout this book, Malachi keeps asking questions. But his questions are known as rhetorical questions. How many of you know what a rhetorical question is? Sure you do. A rhetorical question is a question that's not meant to receive an answer. It's meant to make a point. A rhetorical question is asked to make the point uh, that has been within the message. And, and the best known of all of his rhetorical questions is the one found here in Malachi 3, verses 8 and 9. Will a man rob God? Malachi is dealing with the foundation of physical fitness. Not physical with a P, but physical with an F. In other words, it's not about your body, it's about your money. And so what happens is Malachi, he rebukes them and says, God rebukes you. Malachi says that the people, they've robbed God. They say, how? And according to Malachi, the people have robbed God by not giving their tithes and offerings. The word robbed here literally means to take by force. They've taken by force something that already belongs to God. See, sometimes we think of giving as, this is mine, I'm going to give it to God. And God says, no, no, it was mine, and you give it back to me, because it was on loan to you. Everything you and I have has been loaned to us by God. You say, prove it. Well, how did you get here? How did you make yourself? When will your days expire? How many ticks of your heart remain? When you take your last breath, how much are you taking with you? 1 Corinthians 6, 19, what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are His. He gives a rebuke, but then because of that, there's a retribution. He says in verse number nine, you're cursed with a curse. God wants to bless his people, but he says that your choice determines blessing or curse. You rob God, you're going to experience curse. But then he gives a remedy. What's the remedy? The remedy is to return. Return to God what is his. Verse 10 Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. Bring what belongs to him and, and give to him so that this curse will be removed. And then he says there's a reward. When you do that, God says upon your returning, upon your tithing, 
when you repent of your robbing, there's a reward that follows. And Malachi goes on to share how the blessings of God will be poured out upon you to such a degree, he says, you won't even be able to contain it all. That's what verse 10 is saying. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in mine house and prove me. Put me to the test now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. God is saying, I put my signature to this. I put my name to this. And see if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. See, the reality is you give to God the first dime out of every dollar. You give to God the first day of every week. You give to God the first hour of every day. You give to God the first fruits of your increase. And the Bible says, God says, I'm going to open the windows of heaven and I'm going to bless you so much you won't be able to keep up with it. Now, there are those who preach what is called a prosperity gospel. And they misuse passages just like this. Now understand, God does not promise to give you earthly wealth when you give generously to his kingdom. That's not what he's promising. God is not a slot machine. What is the blessing when he says, I will pour you out a blessing? We know this just from the entirety of the whole Bible. He's referring to experiencing God enjoying God, extending to us His goodness. You see, it's not I'm going to invest in God like I invest into some stocks. And, And if things go right, I just might be able to retire early. No, it's not that. It's recognizing that God has promised to meet all of my needs. And that happens not just because I'm a Christian, but it happens when I put into practice this spiritual discipline and habit of putting God at his rightful place, then I can take it to the bank. I'm going to have all my needs taken care of. I won't have every want. Uh, I, I mean, I... There's a lot of things I may want, but I may not get those, but God an awful lot of times goes even beyond and does exceeding and abundantly above all I could ever ask or think, but he has promised to meet my every need. W.A. Criswell said, your hearts aren't big enough. Your arms aren't wide enough to receive the abounding blessings I'll pour out upon you if you return to me the sense of stewardship. See, God is talking about the riches in him and knowing and experiencing him. After all, you can have money and not be blessed. You can be wealthy and have no joy or peace. So he's not talking about just giving you something else that won't satisfy. But what he is talking about is experiencing him and he always satisfies. So God is saying, you give and I'll give back. God says, you pour out and I'll pour back. God says, you send up. God says, I'll send back down. 
That's why I say you can't outgive God. Now, Jesus said it a little bit more poetically in Luke 6 and verse 38. Jesus said it this way, give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over shall men give into your bosom. You see, the more you give, the more comes back to you because God is the greatest giver in the universe and he will not let you outgive him. I wonder why the Lord did ask for tithes from you and me when all the treasures of the earth are his eternally. And why should he depend upon us to fill his house with meat when we have so very little and his storehouse is replete? But he said to bring our little and he would add his much. Then all the heavenly windows would be opened at his touch. Blessings running over. Even more than has been told will be ours, but there's no promise if his portion we withhold. Are we afraid to prove him? Is our faith and love so small that we tightly grasp our little when he freely gives us his all? Now, understand when we're talking about this matter of giving, keep in mind Israel, Old Testament. God commanded the Israelites to tithe, to give a tenth, a tenth of whatever he gave them. And this is replete throughout the Old Testament. By giving back to God 10% of what he had provided, his people were acknowledging his sovereignty, that he's God Almighty. They were acknowledging that they were grateful for God's goodness and they were demonstrating faith that he would continue to provide for our needs. When they did this, they came under the cover of God's covenant, God's protection. Now, this practice and purpose of the tithe continued into the New Testament. I want to jot down a verse, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 4 through 10. And Jesus continues that priesthood of Melchizedek, which was mentioned And Melchizedek received a tithe in Genesis chapter 14. And we find that Jesus is continuing this lineage and example so that he too continues to receive the tithe. Now, listen, your level of spiritual seriousness and development will always show up in your wallet, your checkbook, and your bank account. Statistics typically report that the average local church is supported by 20% of its members and that the average Christian gives less than 3% of his or her income to God. Many Christians then suffer from what I call cirrhosis of the giver. (laughs) And while general... Paralysis sets in when reaching for the wallet or purse to support the ministry of one's church. The disease amazingly disappears at the mall or the restaurant or the beach. The truth is you cannot accomplish kingdom work, God's kingdom work, when you rob God's kingdom. Well, we go to the early church. You can see all through the book of Acts. Since the early days of the church 2,000 years ago to this day, 
collections have been taken up to support the church's work. They got that from the Old Testament from Malachi. He says, bring the tithes into the storehouse that there would be sufficient in the church. And according to Acts 2 and verse 45, the early church, they sold their possessions and goods and they parted them to all men as every man had need. We passed the offering plates. They would have asked people to contribute their possessions because there are people who have sacrificed and suffered being identified with Jesus. Now that's hard to understand in today's America, though we're, we're, we're heading that direction. It's likely that the church in the book of Acts and the New Testament had officers who served as administrators of those funds to ensure proper organization and distribution was made to the correct amounts given to those in need. This was especially important, as I mentioned, because heavy burden incurred upon people because they chose to follow Jesus. Many lost their jobs. They were disowned for becoming Christians. So the church would band together to care for each other. And by the way, that's still the practice we'll follow today. When people come in, they'll come in on a regular basis and they'll ask, um, can, can I get some money? Just need some money for my, for my tank. Tank of gas is all I need. And, and I remind them, and we put it in our Constitution bylaws so that no matter how much I, I may feel for somebody, I cannot give without the consent of the deacons. No one deacon get, can give without the consent of others. And part of the reason is because the world thinks the church ought to be helping us. You're here for the community, help us. And that comes from a wrong mindset about the social gospel that if we just meet everybody's social needs, then we will be functioning as a church. The church is not here to meet people's social needs. It's to meet the need spiritually, which will determine where you spend an eternity. But when it comes to helping meet needs, our first and foremost responsibility is to our local church family. And then there's a way in which people have been helped in our church family and can be helped. But it's the design of God's church. In the New Testament, giving was based on the Old Testament precedent of tithe. The tithe again was what percent? 10%. It was 10% of one's annual crop or income. And the tithe supported the Levites. That's the tribe whose primary responsibility was to work in the service of the temple as priests. And so they'd bring that tenth and it would help that tribe. It helped uh, those priests to be able to function and make it. Well, the New Testament, it doesn't prescribe a specific amount but it still holds the value of the tithe, the tenth. And that's rule, that old covenant, is still valuable today in the new covenant. But it's valuable as a starting place. As sacrificial giving is encouraged, God doesn't put a limit to it. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, Jesus will often take Old Testament examples. If you read through Matthew chapter 5, he'll say, you heard that it was said in time of old. And Jesus says, but I'm going to raise the bar. And he would say this very phrase, but I say unto you. 
That's a good standard back there. But he said, there's an even better standard when you know more grace, when you know more of experiencing God. In many of Paul's letters, he encourages giving, actively raising funds to support ministry efforts in persecuted churches. Paul was busy about that. And there are many examples in Scripture of giving to support God's work and God's mission. But one of the important reasons why we give is that God owns it all anyway. Amen. We're not owners. Not if you have a half a brain cell in a Bible. You're not an owner. Oh, I paid for it myself. Well, have you ever heard of something such as an earthquake, a tornado, a heart attack? God knows how to strip from your puny little hands that which you think you own. We give because ultimately God owns it anyways. We're not owners, we're stewards. Listen to Psalm 50, verse 10 through 12. You've known this thought, you've known this principle by way of a song perhaps. But listen to what it says. For every beast of the forest is mine. And the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. See, God reminds his people, he doesn't ask for sacrifice because he needs the animal. God doesn't ask for money because he's short on cash. God owns it all. It's all His. He has no need for anything. He doesn't ask us to give because He needs us. He's asking us to give because we need Him. When we realize that everything we have is truly His and comes from Him, we're filled with gratitude. And we become eager to give back a portion of what He's graciously given to us. Ultimately, what God is after is our heart. That's what he's after. Why? Because no person ever gets saved until they recognize salvation is not about what you do. It's not about the works you've done. Salvation is about your heart. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, then thou shalt be saved. Remember the thief on the cross? There were two. And remember the one thief who said to Jesus, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom? That thief said to the other one, We're here because we deserve it. We're, we're, we're crooks. We're criminals. And do you know that you are as well? You don't know me, you say. But God does, I say. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned. All means all. That's all of what all means. All have sinned and come short of God's standard. Someone says, well, I'm doing the best I can. Let me ask you, how much have you done? See, we have this idea that there's a scale. 
My good works outweigh my bad works and I'll get to heaven. There's no scale in the Bible. There's no scale in the Bible that determines your salvation. If there was a scale, Jesus died in vain. He died because he was the only one. He literally left heaven because you could not earn it. You couldn't buy it. You don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. That's why it's a gift. That's why it's grace. That's why it's his mercy. That's why it's called salvation. The only thing you earn is hell. That's the only thing you and I deserve is hell. But when we see the gift of God is not a plan, it's a person. His name is Jesus. And you come to the point of saying, I don't want my sin. I don't want to go to hell. It's Jesus. I remember a man telling me one time, I'm going to heaven because I keep the Ten Commandments. I said, interesting. Can you tell me what they are? He thought for a moment. He said, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. So that's a good idea. It's not one of the ten. He said, cleanliness is next to... I just stopped him right there. I said, it's not even... I said, your mom would be proud, but it's not one. It's not even, it's not even there. I said, you mean to tell me you think you're going to heaven because of keeping the ten commandments? You can't even name them. Well, I'm doing the best I can. Well, how good do you have to do? Do you know how good you have to be and how much good you have to do? Jesus says it, Matthew 5, 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Do you know of anybody who's perfect? The only person I know who thinks he's perfect is the Pope. That's why he's not married, because if he were married, his wife would tell him otherwise. But God tells us even the Pope is not perfect. He's a sinner. He's come short of God's standard and glory. That's why that crowd keeps changing God's standard. And God says, you leave it alone. You don't add to it. You don't take away from it. Or judgment is upon you. For my word is forever settled in heaven. It's, it's not what you do. I asked one person, well, you think you're going to heaven based upon how good you are. But if all of eternity hinges upon this, don't you think you'd have a, a scorecard somewhere? Kind of like in golf. Don't you have a scorecard? Bowling, you have a scorecard. Every sport, there's some score that's there. So what's your score? How good do you have to be? Do you know every religion of the world, every religion of the world, they cannot tell you, I know 100% certain right now that if I took my last breath right now or five years from now, either right now or five years from now, I am 100% certain all of my sins, past, present, future are forgiven and that right now I have eternal life. No religion in the world can say, I know, I know, I know. They can't. Because every religion of the world, it hinges upon what they do. But Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Well, Jesus, I'm working for you. In Matthew 7, he will say to those people in that day who said, we preached in your name, we did ministry in your name, we did miracles in your name, and he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Amen. Why? Because he rejects anything you try to earn or buy when he paid it all. Amen. 
You pay off your automobile. You want to keep sending money into the bank? You pay your last mortgage. You want to keep sending money in? And Jesus, John 19 and verse 30, before he took his last breath, he cried, It is finished. He paid the sin debt. So why would you want to keep adding to it? Jesus paid it all. I'm so thankful that giving does not get me into heaven. I'm not giving so I can go to heaven. God's people give because we took the gift that gets us to heaven. And salvation is not a process of what you do. Salvation is an event like your wedding date. It's an event of what God did in you. Jesus is after our heart. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, that Sermon on the Mount, you'll find Jesus talked a lot about possessions and money because, again, he's going after the heart. Listen to Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. Now notice verse 21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus is talking about possessions. He's going after the heart. He tells us not to store up our treasures for ourselves here on earth, but in heaven. Why? Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. I used to have the idea that it was the other way around. That wherever my heart is, that's where my treasure is. But the idea Jesus is getting across is the order and the progression of our heart and treasure. And Jesus is saying, it's not that we love something and therefore we begin to invest in it. No, what Jesus says, it's the opposite that works. He says, our heart always will follow our investment. So Jesus says, where are you investing? Don't say you love Jesus when you're investing in things that Jesus does not approve of. When we place our treasure in heaven and we place our treasure in God's hands, we'll find that our heart will soon follow. We will grow in our love for God and desire the things of God and the kingdom of God more and more. Look at chapter 6 and verse 24. He goes on to say, no man can serve two masters. You either hate the one and love the other, else you will cling to the one, despise the other. See, having problems in our life, everybody has them. Everybody's going to have them. But having money is not going to solve the problem. And having money is not the problem. Though the danger is when money has you. And it becomes more important to you than spiritual things. God must have your devotion. And if you're to receive his kingdom, direction and blessing, he must have your heart. See, our giving, it reflects our attitude toward God. Now, Jesus taught this in another parable in Luke chapter 12. In verse 16 through 21, he spake a parable unto them saying, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. 
And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and will build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, this is God speaking, thou fool. This night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose things, whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know what this man's problem was that Jesus was talking about? It was not his abundance. It was not that he was rich. The man's problem was that he needed to understand where his riches came from and what the riches were to be used for. Instead of gratefully receiving what God had given, this man took God's gifts and he placed them as his source of satisfaction and dependence. And so Jesus said, this man was foolish. He was physically rich, spiritually poor. Jesus asked, what would it profit you if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul? This man had everything except God. And he made all these plans to invest more, to have bigger barns, open up another account. He had plans to live it up and enjoy retirement. And that the Bible says, God says, thou fool. Because what the man didn't prepare for was taking his last breath. He should have used what God had given him as an opportunity to be rich toward God. And to be generous toward others. When Jesus teaches us about giving, he's emphasizing that it is less about the raw amount that we give. And it's more about the proportion and the intention behind why we give. What counts as generous or sacrificial is not the number of zeros behind it. Because one's possessions and one's abundance and one's generosity differs from one person to another. We all, we all have different financial status and situations that God has given to us. In Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, we have a story about Jesus making an observation of people giving. It says, and Jesus set over against the treasury and behold how the people cast money into the treasury and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto his disciples and he said unto them, Verily I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. Why? For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. See, the truth is God's not impressed and he's not partial to wealthy people just because they have a lot. What God is seeking is your heart. And he's seeking the true surrender of one's heart. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul uses the example of uh, the church in Macedonia. The Bible says of this church that they were in extreme poverty, but they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. 
They gave beyond their means and of their own accord to receive the favor of taking part in the relief of God's people. In other words, they considered it a, a privilege. We don't have much. We don't have anything, but we're still going to take part in giving to meet needs and, and to, to, to get in on what God is doing. Paul says in reality, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 5, Paul says in reality, the first thing they did, they gave their heart to God. And then Paul says, then they gave themselves to us. See, God's not looking for your money. He's looking for your heart. And wherever you're investing, that's where your heart is. So God says, you begin to put some skin in the game and you begin to put some dependence upon him. And you're going to find that your heart will follow. Where are you investing today? What are you investing in? Who are you investing in? Paul even says that this financial giving and generosity in 2 Corinthians 8, it mirrors the actions of Jesus Christ. He tells the Corinthian church, we should consider what Jesus Christ gave up for us. He gave up the riches of heaven. He gave up his place and privilege with the Father to come down to this impoverished, broken world. The reason Jesus did this was so that we who are poor sinners could become rich with him. Amen. We get to enjoy the riches of heaven through, through his self-sacrifice, generosity on the cross. When I look up at the cross where God's great steward suffered loss, Yes, loss of life and blood for me, a trifling thing. Now it seems to me to pay the tithe, dear Lord, to thee. Time and talent, wealth or store, full well I know I owe thee more. A million times I owe thee more. But that is just the reason why I give my heart to God on high. And pledge thee by this portion small, my life my love, my all in all. This holy token of giving in light of thy cross makes all the money seem but dross. But in my heart, Lord, thou dost see how I have pledged my all to thee and now will live joyfully with open hands to thee. Amen. You know, Paul gives some practical advice. I want to leave us with this thought to summarize what we've just looked at. Some goals in our giving. Why do I practice the spiritual habit of regular giving? Why am I leading us into this? Well, ultimately it was so that God would open up the windows of heaven so you can experience God and know joy. Let me just mention these real quick. Number one, we do it first to demonstrate our spiritual commitment to the Lord. Number two, to model the generosity that God has shown us. Number three, to support full-time ministry and mission work. Number four, to build up the church. Number five, to participate in God's mission. Number six, to become surrendered stewards. Number seven, to become generous people. Number eight, to experience joy. Number nine, to store up treasures in heaven. See, the spiritual discipline of regular giving, it turns our hearts to God. It opens up that tight grip we sometimes have on the things we own. 
making what we own and use, and the money we have, making it available for God's use. Then God makes more money and resources available to us. See, God's people who give will be given by God so we can keep continuing to give. When we give regularly, we begin to become more like Christ in that we become more generous and more attached to people than our possessions. When I think of generosity, I think of specific people in our church who have sacrificed. People who have given to needs and people who have wanted to remain anonymous, but they've given sacrificially. And then there are other examples of Bible givers. I want to mention David Green, the founder of Hobby Lobby. He's been remarkably generous with his wealth. He made it a policy and practice from his early on business career to tithe 10%, not just of his own personal profit, but of his company's profit. He's given away multiple millions of dollars to ministries worldwide. And he often talks about being a steward rather than an owner. R.G. Letourneau. Keys, does that name sound familiar to you? You'd be interested maybe in reading about him. He took on a whole new meaning to me once came here and got to know the Keys business. But in 1904, he gave his life to Christ and he went on to become a successful businessman. And he's considered to be the father of the modern earth-moving industry. But he's credited with over 300 different inventions. He was a faithful Christian. But he made a decision. His decision was, I'm going to give 90% of our profit away to ministry, which means their business would live off of 10%. That became a problem. The problem was the money kept coming in faster than he could give it away. As he became wealthy, committing to living on 10% of his income, giving away 90% of his personal income and profits to the kingdom work. And here's what Letourneau once said, quote, I just keep shoveling out. God just keeps shoveling back. But God's got a bigger shovel and I just can't outgive God. Amen. He also said the question is not how much of my money I give to God, but rather how much of God's money I keep for myself. You say, that might seem radical. Well, isn't that the kind of disciples that Jesus was calling and equipping? And isn't that the kind of disciples we need in today's America where people are radical and trying to destroy and undermine this country? We need some people who'd be radical and they're trusting God and see if He's not trustworthy to open up the windows of heaven. We fight greed with radical generosity. Now, however, that may look to you. Would you know that we're waging a war against the love of money? And it's always worth the fight. Because anything that takes your love away from God will leave you empty. Would you pray with me that God would help us to see that generosity is the true antidote 
to greed and that he would help us stay in this fight and be able to thrive in experiencing God and living like Jesus himself. For God so loved the world that he gave. Let's stand together, please.